Welcome to Grief is My Side Hustle. I am your host, Megan Mirren Jarvis, and I am very excited to be talking to Katie Riley today. Katie, thank you so much for being here. Thanks so much for having me. I'm excited. I have been looking forward to this conversation for a while, which is a perverse thing to say when you run a grief podcast, but I just feel a real kinship to your story and to your transition from lawyer to writer to writing lawyer, not because I was a lawyer, by the way, don't be confused, but just the idea that when you add the energy of grief, it sometimes shifts your previous choices and you have to accommodate and change a little bit. I would love to ask the question that I ask everybody so that our listeners can get to know you a little bit. What brought you into the world of grief and loss? Yes. Yeah, so I really wasn't in the world of grief and loss for a right. while because I never met my grandparents. I didn't have early experiences with grief at all. And then when I was in my last year of law school, my mom was undergoing some testing and I think people had suspicions of a stroke because she had like the slurred speech, but she went underwent testing for a while. And eventually we found out it was ALS. And she told me the weekend I graduated and then she died the following summer. So it was one year. Yeah, it was fast. And then within about a year and a half after she passed, my dad found out he had cancer. He had non-Hodgkin's lymphoma that was tied to his service in Vietnam. And the oncologist thought it was kind of flared up by being a caretaker. And we were really lucky. It was, I think when he got cancer, I realized how much I'd like invested in him. I mean, I always invested in him. I loved him, but you know, my mom died. I'm like, okay, we're okay. I'm like trying to convince myself we're okay. Cause dad's here and this is good. And so when he got cancer, it just totally blew my mind. And then we got through it, we completed chemotherapy and, you know, he had kind of talked to some specialists and tried to gather information about what it might look like if it came back. And it, we understood that it would be pretty bad. And I think he was given like some options of things he didn't want to do. And within two years, the cancer came back. And I think it was like maybe three or four months between when he was diagnosed and when he died. So he died on my mother's birthday, almost like exactly four summers apart. And then the real, for better or worse, probably worse grief journey, like started there. Yeah. It's so compound that story. Will you tell folks what, who may not know what ALS is and what kind of a disease and the progression of what that looks like is, I think people are sort of familiar with cancer, but they may not know. Yes, totally. I mean, that oddly is like a question I like now, I think. So ALS, which people usually know is as Lou Gehrig's disease is a neurological disorder which basically your muscles atrophy until you die. The average, I think on average, people live two to three years after diagnosis, but you know, people's experiences of ALS, like there vary so much. I mean, my mother had bulbar ALS, which was concentrated in her chest. So she could still walk, but you know, she, she couldn't breathe and eat and those things that we need to live. But I think something 
that I'm maybe more interested in now that I've had time to kind of process or heal or whatever the right word is, is talking more about ALS because that component of it was so isolating. My peers were like dating and doing jobs. So I already feel like having a dying parent was isolating. And then often people would say, oh, well, what is ALS? And have you talked to a doctor? And Yes. And there's no we have cure. Talked to a doctor. In fact, we have yes, yeah. we've talked to many, yeah. many doctors and it's a classic someone offering help, but you know, there is no cure. A recent drug just came, was approved last year, but I think it prolongs yeah. your life by like around six months, which is, is great. It's something, but I mean, it's such a bleak, bleak diagnosis for the person and their family. Right. Because it's a terrible way to die. It is is the which is partly why I ask about it. When we're talking about grief, we're talking about something that is universal, and then we're talking about the really intimate specifics of it. I sort of learned this more deeply and more personally when I was in treatment. You know, my dad died of small cell cancer, which is also pretty much a death sentence. And he died, I think, a year and seven days after his diagnosis, which is what doctors actually predict with small cell cancer. But when I went to write about it, I was really struggling to remember him well, because Mm. so much of that year is remembering his ill health and the difficulty of the treatments. And one thing that I know about ALS is that it is similar in that way, that there is not a ton of treatment, but the way in which the body breaks down is brutal for people who are trying to love on their person as they're dying. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think also like the uncertainty, they don't know what how your ALS will progress. So you're just kind of like flying by the seat of your pants and like desperately holding on and hoping that maybe you'll be the rare one that lives longer or your person will be. So I, that aspect of ALS was so isolating and I still, you know, it's such a rare disease that I rarely hear someone in the final stages. You can hear most often people first lose their voices, but when I hear it still, when I hear it now, I just, I, it takes me a while to kind of move on. Yeah. 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 Brings you that five senses experience of being sort of transformed back into that incredibly hard ass time. I was in that, like, I think I was at a point in my life. So I had no grief experience. I like just finished law school. You know, I'm like, things are going good. You know, I got this all figured out pretty like naive, you know, maybe not necessarily a bad way. And so even when she got the diagnosis, I was like, there has to be a way and we'll do research. And like, so I just, it felt, it broke me down so much to watch her die and do nothing. And then to bring her to medical providers who can't do anything. Yeah. Yeah, It felt like extra, extra layers or something. Right. Well, because there's the, there's the concrete grief and it's, I think one of the things that people talk about when their loved ones are ill is sort of the way in which your brain integrates what it knows and what it doesn't know. One of the things that was confusing when my dad was dying was there was a wide variety of understanding how ill he was amongst my five siblings and my mom. I think my mom's approach was full on denial. Like he's going to get better. 
which was confusing and sort of like negative confirmation bias. Like you could sit in a meeting with a doctor and see how she would pull out what she needed. And the observing part of me that was like a therapist was like, wow, the mind has the capacity not to know what it cannot tolerate. Like it has an unbelievable capacity. But then also the amount of like open medical doors, like you can come in here with the hope that there will be help and treatment. And that's not really what's happening. You know, my dad had a number of medical treatments that were really just to stem his pain that the general conversation would sort of sound like we're making you better. And the actual conversation was you're not getting better. So I'm just curious about like, you didn't like me, you didn't have a lot of time in between those two experiences. And when you reflect back on, because also your dad gets this crazy diagnosis, that's not that common. Right. And so then you're back in the, what are our medical options? What can doctors do? How can we be helped here? What was the, like, when you were coping what were your coping mechanisms for doing that? Was it denial, you know, drinking, like going out with friends, pretending? How did you manage to, did you throw yourself into law school? Like what was your either active grieving or not grieving? What did it look like? It's like such a blur, which says a lot. I mean, I tried to work through some of what was going on. I mean, I saw some therapists, but I don't know if I found someone that was like a good fit and I've always loved sports. So I would exercise, but I remember like, I usually run like five miles. And one day I went for a run and I stopped and realized I've been gone for like two and a half hours or something. Definitely drinking more. I mean, I think I always believed like, oh, if you work harder, it's like on me. So if I work harder and I do more like things, like I'll feel better. And so I just kept pushing whatever, whatever was like in front of me. And then I would really like obsess over my dad's health on my own and not really think about what had happened as much to my mom and how I felt about it. And, and I definitely, I mean, I started having I've always probably been like high energy, you know, sometimes anxious, but then it was, I was just like really anxious, like a lot, yeah, like in a very consuming way. Uh, so I wish I had more healthy coping mechanisms. Well, what's so hard about that? You know, sometimes when people report around, you know, like I was anxious, like, yeah, of course you were fucking anxious. You were anxious because your dad had essentially a terminal diagnosis a couple of years after your mom had a terminal diagnosis. Your brain is smart and understands that it's already anticipating something terrible happening and it's not illogical. It's actually totally logical. So it's, it's that like, yeah, you were anxious and we just need to help you moderate that anxiety, which you know, sounds like you probably ran 13 miles that day or 26 (laughs) miles or something, you know, that's a, that's one way the body will, will create all the endorphins and you get all the norepinephrine, you know, all the, all the adrenaline, all the good stuff exactly from that. And I'm always so interested, you know, there's a lot of this, like, I should have grieved this way. If only I had done better Mm self-care, 
blah, blah, blah. And, you know, one of the things I think I understand from the core is it is the way that it is. It will feel mm. the way that it feels. And it's a little bit like holding onto the edge of the walls during an earthquake and just hoping like, you know, your head doesn't get cracked, you know, you know, you end up with the fewest gashes possible. Right. Yeah. I mean, you kind of, you did say this, you're like, everyone does this and I'm about to do it, but <laughs> well, I, well, I well, predicted it. <laughs> I think the, I mean, what I remember the most is feeling extremely isolated and very ashamed. Like I felt like, oh, people lose their moms all the time. And like, I think there was just like, there is that people only want to listen for a certain amount of time. They want you to get back on and be yourself. And I had a really hard time, like pushing up against that, you know, like I, I feel like if I was being honest. I would be like, I'm so traumatized after watching that. Like people caretaking is like a whole nother thing. People don't talk about, right. uh, but instead I was like, okay, I'm, yeah, I'm good. Sure. You want to be for drinks. And the, but I was carrying around a lot of shame about how I was actually feeling. Yeah. You know, that word shame is so important. And I think, and I'll just say it for the listeners that shame is about who I am, right? Like this is, I'm a person who can't cope And that makes me a bad person. And I think shame, like I 100% believes it like multiplies when we have no one to bounce reality off of, right? Like developmentally, when your mom dies, like you're in that phase of life where it's supposed to be like multiplying and expanding, right? Like you're supposed to be like going out, dating, finding your passion, exercising, joining a softball group, like you know, enjoying reading and also deciding who you want to be when you grow up, what city do you want to live in? Are you going to buy a house? Are you going to have kids? All the stuff, all the things. And that it's actually kind of like a 15 year period in life where that is, is the norm of the age group. But when you're in it, it just feels like the only thing that is normal. And if for whatever reason, it could be your ill health, it could be your mom dies. It could be, you know, you were mugged, like for whatever reason, if you get pulled out of that track, everybody else keeps going, not because they're assholes, because like that, they're not off the track. They're there. And it has this impact and grievers talk about all the time, which is like, I felt crazy. And I felt like people didn't want to be around me. And then if you don't interrupt that cycle, if they don't get support, how I feel becomes who I am. Mm. It's like, oh, it's like almost a math equation. I feel crazy becomes, I I must be crazy. I am crazy. Did happen to me singularly. It's too much for me to think about and talk about all the time. But if I don't connect to people, then again, I'm over here like a little silo. It's the thing that grievers talk about the most, which is like, I just felt so alone. And what really like, makes me insane is when people are like, but you're not alone. Yes. You fucking are alone. Yes, you are. You lost your mom. You lost your dad. Nobody did that with you. Even if you have siblings, even if there are millions of other people who honor them, your relationship is distinct and specific and discreet to them. Right. Oh my God. Oh my God. Yes. I'm like, I mean, I think that's such an interesting thing. Cause even 
people have had similar experiences or within your family, I think there's always this sense of being like, we're, we all went through the same thing. And I think there's like a great part of that. And I think there's another part where you're like, well, actually, like, I feel differently about this. Cause like, you know, for example, I, I was living with my parents or whatever, whatever someone's saying. And sometimes that lumping, it's just like a way to just like push something aside. I don't know. So that resonates a lot for me. Yeah. And it's well-meaning when people are like, I get it. And I think, I think in lots of ways, hearing someone say, I get it is important, but I, I don't know why it always makes me think of what I, I, my daughter's 14 and I joined this like new moms group. And the very first thing that happened, you know, we have our tiny little babies in our arms. The very first thing that happened was they were like, okay, this is going to take us like three sessions, but everyone is going to go around and tell their story. Mm of, of birthing their child. And every single story is a trauma story, right? Mm. Like, of course it is because it's fucking terrifying and everybody knows maternal health rates and your body's doing things as I've never done before. And it's scary. And it all really, really matters more than anything else in the world. So every woman there told her story. Every woman there cried over every story. I have never forgotten what it was like to be like, oh my God, okay, now we all know each other's stories. And they weren't similar. They were similar in the sense that the feelings were the same, but some people had home births. Some people did almost die. Some people lost their uteruses. Some people had totally simple, you know, no pain, but it is a trauma story. It's this like significant, terrifying event that happens that imprints inside you physically. And so it's really important to have people who say, I have also had a trauma similar to yours, but I want to know from the beginning, all the way through all the things that makes your story unique and different. What has, what has the experience for you been like now that you are a person out in the world without the backstop or the generation behind you of parents? What has that felt like? I don't, there's layers, right? I live in California. We recently went back to DC where I grew up and like, there's, there's no, our house, we don't have our family house. And I saw a lot of my parents' friends, which are great, but this is, my mom's been dead 12 and a half years. My dad, eight and a half. And this is the first time I've been back where it hasn't been super upsetting to be there. And then I could like, I still was sad, but I could see their friends and not be like, this is so great, but I want to see my parents. So they're sad about like the holidays feel emptier. I think I have a two-year-old and a five-year-old and they don't know my parents. They know their names and they're curious and they'll bring them up, but it's like a, you know, we try, but it's, it's a concept. It's not someone who's like giving them a hug and then right, they don't know them. Yeah. Totally. And the flip side, I want someone to give me a hug when I, you know, like they're my youngest is body training and she pees on the floor and editors don't get back to me. And I'm just like having such a hard day. And it's like, it would, I like, I don't have someone like that to call. I don't know if this is right, but I almost feel like I've learned to semi accept it with them. So I don't think about it as often, but I often, what happens to me is when I see one of my friends with their kids and their grandparents. And I like kind of get a look into like what life would look like, or my mom just flew out. So, because I was having the baby or X, Y, and Z. And I'm just like, Oh my God, like, or babysitting or like a million different ways. It's more like when I hear that, that I'm like, Oh, 
there was this other option that feels like it got taken away. Yeah. I, I mean, one of the questions I ask often is how, you know, how do you miss them? And I think you're answering that question a little bit of like, where do you feel the absence of them? I was just, I literally just came from having lunch with a friend whose mom died a long time ago and, and dad, she was estranged from, but he also died recently. We were walking back and she was just sort of casually, she was like, do you know that neighbor? And I was like, I do. And she was like, I walked the dog past her house the other day and both her parents were there and they were talking about this trip they took and I just stood there like talking to them and kind of pretending that they were my parents for a minute and also feeling deeply envious and sorrowful that I didn't get this. I was like, I understand like that there when you, you don't begrudge somebody else it, but you feel the absence and is there a way I didn't ask your parents' name and I usually do. What were what were their names? Uh, my mom's name was Sarah and my dad's name was Jack. Sarah and Jack, those are great names. Did you have a way in which you miss your mom? You know, there's a there's a thing that she used to do or that she was as a person that really just, you know, you always think of her. Yeah. I mean, my mom was like a really atypical mom. She had me later. She was like one of the only women for a while who was like a partner in a law firm. She was like this short New Yorker. She's like flick off cab drivers. And like, oh, you know, she wasn't badass. like, totally <laughs> like she, I'd be like, mom, stop saying fuck. You know, it was like, it was totally <laughs> the opposite of my friends. Oh, and, I think I would like Sarah. <laughs> oh yeah. Sarah, yeah. Well, she was very funny. This big personality. I mean, she worked a lot, which I think was hard. And she wasn't someone who like, she wasn't warm and fuzzy, you know? So it was hard to get like, you get a compliment every couple of years and then you just like cherish it, you know? But I think about her the most now in two ways. I think my girls are like just swimming and starting to climb and stuff. And my mom also like, she was really athletic. She was a swimmer and she played tennis and she skied and she ice skated. And like, I look back on it and my sisters and I all played sports and that was just like normal. Like you just went for it. You know, that was just like what you did. And I wish I could be like, Oh, like I'm, you know, see, have them see that part of her and have her see that part of them. And then I think in some ways, I don't know. My mom wasn't the best at like instilling confidence in some ways. Cause she was, could be like a bit aloof, but in certain moments, she'd just be like, oh, just fuck it, go for it. And it just like, it was just something that would like shoot off a rocket. You know, it's like some days where I like, oh, I'm doubting this. I'm feeling shitty. I want to call her and be like, oh, you're Katie. You're like, you, you've got it. Just fucking go for it. And like, hang up the phone. Yes. And be like, yeah, I've got it. I've got yes. it. I totally um, understand that. Yeah. Just like that little pep talk or something. Well, and I appreciate the way that you're talking about it, right? Because I think there is this, like, I don't know, somebody said to me a while back, like, I know you had the best relationship with your mom. And I was like, no, I, you know, no, that's my mom was like a pain in the ass. And she was really hard. And we didn't talk during my 20s. I used to hang up on her all the time. But also, I was deeply devoted to her. And I loved her a lot. And I feel like if we had had more time, we would have enjoyed that time a lot. And so I missed that part of her life and my life together that we didn't get. I think she found me easier when I was a mother. 
And because she was, you know, she was a mother starting at 19. And so I just like made more sense to her, but I, you know, one of the things that I appreciate with my siblings and other people who knew her is being able to be like, well, I mean, obviously you didn't call my mom when you were sick. She would tell you it was your own fault. You know, I, <laughs> exactly. Right. I think that like loving your people for who they really were rather than an imaginary version is actually part of the grief work in general is not making it a Cinderella story, but being truthful about what is it that they did well? And then what is it that you miss about the thing that they did well. And what I'm hearing in the way that you're describing it is that you have girls who would have made sense to your mom and that she would have made sense to them and that they would have, all of you would have been able to connect around this athleticism, which sounds like just a bummer that nobody got to do that, that your mom would have enjoyed that. You would have enjoyed it. They would have enjoyed it. I mean, I feel like she would have been like the crazy granny who was like, like, mom, get off the roller skates or, you know, that kind of thing. And then what you said actually like is so true. Like sometimes I feel like what I miss is like having the chance to have an argument with her, you know, like to be like, why did you do this? Or like to talk about that. Or like now that I'm a parent to like not being able to like have those conversations as adults. Cause you're not like, I don't know if your teens and twenties counts as well for meaningful, yeah. you know, we have and, different like, brains. We have yeah. different ways of being. Yeah. And missing that opportunity to like go back to some of that stuff with like different perspective and different skills and have those conversations again is definitely something I miss. Yeah. And to some degree, I got that with my dad because I knew he was ill and we had had a lot of tension between us. You know, I don't know if he would say the same thing. I'm not sure he felt, I'm not sure he was thinking as much about our relationship as I was, but I was able to sort of drop that when he was sick. But you know, part of, part of what drives me really batshit again, is when people tell lies, even people Mm. in the grief space who are like, Oh, platitude, this platitude, that. And the one that makes me the most bonkers is when people are like, well, you know, them in your heart. And so you can talk to them in your heart. And I'm like, anxiety. Listen, like my mom and dad were continually evolving people too. And the shit that they told me when I was 12 was not the same stuff they were saying when I, you know, was 40. And so when I want to talk to them about politics, I don't know how they would have voted or what they would have said. When I am telling people I miss them because I want to have a conversation with them about this. It is not because I already have them memorized in my heart and I know with their living memory I don't know. And my dad was a fucking brilliant man. He would say things to me like, oh, you know, in the great recession, I'm like, actually, dad, I don't know about that. <laughs> That's nice. <laughs> studied that, but I didn't keep it in my brain. I wonder what my mom would have, how she would have softened or how she would have. I mean, she was such a funny grandparent. She was sort of like, yeah, you know, I had my kids. Like she had 13, I have five brothers and sisters and wow. she had 13 grandchildren and she was sort of like, like, I love them, but not the way I love my kids. Like my kids, <laughs> my kids, like I'm happy, you know, but she would sit on the phone with me for hours, hmm. you know, pulling apart the details. I think because it mattered to her like that when she was a mom. Hmm. And so those moments where I really miss them are sort of like, God, I just want to talk about this for a hundred minutes. I want to brag about my kid for a hundred minutes, or I want to worry about my kid for a hundred minutes. And sort of similar to what you were talking about, about being a young person with an ill mother, you're kind of like, I get one sentence out here at these drinks to say one thing. 
but then I have to slide into the norm of being a young person in the world. I can't be the woman who's like talking about her mom dying all the time. I have to hold that to myself. And I feel that sometimes as a parent, which is like, I don't want to hear somebody else talk for a hundred minutes about their kid. I don't care about <laughs> their kid that much. I barely <laughs> care about my kid that much, but God, I miss being able to do, to do that kind of thing. What about your dad? How did he show up as a, as a resource or a presence? Yeah, well, it's funny. Well, I'm going to answer that. But what you were saying makes me think about like, you just don't get to, nobody gives you the space to talk about yourself in an interested way as much as your parents. Oh my God. Yeah, you nailed it. And so it's just like someone being like, what's going on? You want to talk about your kids or you want to talk about this like book you're trying to write? Like other people are like, oh, has it gotten published yet? You know, and they're just like in it with you and just like someone giving so much of a shit about, the things you care about is like really hard. So anyway, I was uh, that's what it made me think of that phrase. Someone else giving so much of a shit about the things that you care about. You know, my parents had a lot of flaws, but particularly my mom, she was a fucking superhero at that. Mm. No matter what it was, if I was like, mom, we are 110% trying to get this kid into this daycare center and we have to stand out in line. You know, she'd call me at five o'clock in the morning. Like, I just want to make sure you were getting up to go stand in line to get your kid in a daycare center. Like she mm. was on it. She understood, like she got that parenting memo. My oldest sister and I really do try to show up for each other in this way. I think she does a better job than I do but it's still not replicating. It's still not the same. And I'm shocked to discover because I'm 48 that like, you need that forever. You need that validation forever. I didn't know that. I didn't know when I was a kid that like adults had feelings and needs and emotional <laughs> needs. And, <laughs> I just didn't, and I maybe I didn't care, but I really didn't. I just thought they were like cooked and had it kind of going on. And that at some point your emotional experiences just settled out and you didn't have <laughs> anymore. Yeah. Yeah. So tell me a little bit about your dad. So my dad, I probably, it's funny. I, I still, he is somewhat on a pedestal in a lot of ways. So I'm like, try to speak honestly about him, but my dad was really like a super dad before that was like a cool thing to be like a girl dad. I feel like, like he showed up to all my games and he, I don't know, he was like a, he was a taller, like a bigger guy, but he was like, so humble and soft-spoken and didn't have to be the center. And like, Mm -hmm. I don't know, he just, he was just so loving. Like he would always be kind of anxious and, you know, stressing about anything I was up to, but yeah, you just like always felt that love. And I guess sometimes I, I think he, sometimes I don't know if I felt seen by him in a lot of ways. Cause I looked just like him, but we were very, very, very different Aldis, but I always felt like he showed up. Like, I don't know why you're into this, but I'll see you at four o'clock, you know, that kind of thing. And looking back on it, I think a lot about what I want to give my kids or how I want to like emulate my parents in some ways and, and go a different route in others. And like, his just, his just, he just showed up. He always showed up and he always listened. And often I remember I had a really bad breakup before my husband, but with, uh, it was a really bad breakup and I was crying all the time. I thought we were gonna get married. I was really upset. And we would go through these like long walks and be like, I have no idea what to say, but uh, but let's walk. And it was so nice. And I would cry or, or often we would just like walk in silence. And I felt like 
I don't think he necessarily understood. He knew I was upset, but he couldn't like engage with it, but he was there. Like he made it a point to be there. And often after my mom died, you know, he and I were really in the thick of it a lot. So I often felt maybe judged by other people for this or being too sad or whatever. And he would always just like, thank me for being there and for all this stuff. And when his cancer came back, it was just so quick. And he ended up in the ER. And when I showed up, he was like, what are you doing? What are you doing here? And I was like, dad. And I just, he just, I knew he didn't want me to like have the experience I had with my mom, you know, I mean, I was always annoyed with him for not involving me more, of course, but um, yeah, I knew that he was like protecting me until like the very, very end. Mm -hmm. And yeah, it was, it was, we were always close, but going through my mom together brought us closer. And yeah. So I feel like from him, I'm like, I just try to show up more when I feel like I don't know what I'm doing. (laughs) But that's a lot of time. I think at the root of everything that people talk about in terms of grief, but I I think you're actually broadening it out, which is just like any hard emotions. I think being a person who can go closer, even though it's hard and awkward and I don't know what to say, and it's going to be hard to see you this way. I don't know. The word I always think about is adored. We talk about Mm -hmm. unconditional love and we talk about being worshiped and what romantic love looks like. And I really, I mean, I landed on this early in my twenties, you know, if my people who I would throw myself in front of a train for, I just wanted them to be adored by the people around them, adored by their parents, adored, meaning like also, yeah, no, she's a pain in the ass and really argumentative, but we adore her. Mm. And there's something about what you're describing about your dad that feels like he totally understood that, which is you don't have to care about the sport. You just have to care about your kid and like caring about them can be as simple as just being at the game, Hmm. going on a walk, be you, that is the most concrete demonstration of you matter to me because I'm right here. I'm in your presence. I have shown up for this thing. And I just think about in grief work a lot. People are like, what am I supposed to do? And my answer is always that find a way to show up. If it doesn't work for you and you have to be honest about it. I had a good friend who lost her mom shortly after I lost my mom. And my experience with my mom's death was really traumatizing. I had to be very careful not to let myself get emotionally overwhelmed. And so the way that I had to show up, had to be careful. I couldn't like dive in and solve all her problems. I had to kind of love from a distance. But the way that you talk about your dad seems to be you know, that you felt adored by him, maybe not totally understood by him, but like you really freaking mattered. And that feels like an amazing legacy to bring into your own parenting. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting. I think about it. I was gonna say, I think about it with my kids and I think about it often when someone I know, someone who I didn't know so well, her brother died by suicide. And I was like, I don't, you know, I'm always like, frustrated when people didn't reach up to me after my parents died. Then, then later I have things of, I don't know what to say. And then I think about him. I'm like, just show up, just do, do your best. Like do something like just 
you know, my dad always be like, I'm like awkwardly standing there, like having these conversations about ex-boyfriends, but it's like, I just like, and I think about him when I wanted to go to law school, he was like, huh? He was really, I was always a really good student, but he was surprised by it. And I felt pissed and like offended, like, oh, you don't think I can do it. And then I don't, I can't explain it. I feel like he couldn't articulate things, but he just like knew me in like a certain way. And I think that is probably one of the things that makes me the happiest and the most upset because there's nobody who looks at me like that, that I feel like that just for being myself when I'm like having the worst version of myself. And yeah, that's probably the hardest thing for me. Yeah. Yeah. That all, it, it just, you know, I think you're talking about things that are very specific to you and also totally universal. And I think, you know, if we were talking about child loss, there are things that are universal for parents who have lost children. And when you're talking about, you know, spousal loss, there are things that are universal. I think you and I are talking about, you know, again, what it feels like to understand who your parents really are, and then try to figure out how to live without the kind of love that they gave you knowing it's not really replicable, knowing you'll always miss it a little bit and that you don't stop needing it. But I do think, and you said this a little bit, you do get used to living without it. It's just not the same. So the acuteness of the way that you feel it shifts a little bit, but it doesn't mean that you don't still yearn for it and want it. So, you know, it doesn't, I don't cry as often about, you know, my, my mom or my dad. And generally the way that I miss them these days is like something will happen that they will have enjoyed something that, you know, a book or a movie or something my kids were doing or something. Tell me about where the writing came in and where the shift in being, you know, solely a lawyer, how was that grief related for you? Because a lot of you write gorgeous articles and op-eds and, in Newsweek and in L and, you know, all kinds of pieces about a wide variety of aspects of grief and loss, which I'm so appreciative for. I'm so appreciative. Anytime somebody with the lived experience of loss can put it in words that then other people are going to find relatable, but can you just walk us through a little bit? How did that process begin for you and where are you with it now? Yeah, I was about to say, I'm definitely still in it. I don't know where I am in it, but I'm in it. So my dad died and then I had my oldest three years later. Uh, And like all of my legal career had been around the years of them being sick or dying. So I didn't like practicing law at the time, but I didn't really like doing a lot of things at the time. So I, it was, it wasn't like I could like okay, let me remove this. And then I'll know how I feel about that. So I wasn't happy in it. And then my dad died and I kind of, I had done, I was like doing the big law firm thing. And then I was like, no, I'll go to a tech company. Cause they're you know probably less hours and maybe a nicer environment. And then, and then I'll like what I'm doing. And then that didn't really work. Nice hypothesis. <laughs> yeah. I, was, I was testing. I'm testing, <laughs> but I don't know. I think my mom was such a hard worker. This is to me a convoluted answer. I'm doing my best that I was much more excited about work than having kids. Like having kids wasn't emphasized a lot in our house. Yeah. And so when I had my daughter after losing my parents, traumatic labor, like we talked about, and it just like, it just 
blew my world like have my person I didn't I lost my people and then I have my person and this person is like just getting like cuter and like you know oh, she's yeah. not I taking care of my parents and watching them to go the other way and then I'm in this which is like going the opposite and I was just like really mind blown by it and I knew at the time time that I had a lot of, I don't know, I don't like not, not unresolved. I had a lot of things about my parents is dying that I hadn't looked at yeah. that was like causing a lot of anxiety. I knew that I knew that that was going on and it was easy for me to like put it on my job. Cause like I did work a lot at certain points, but I think that was convenient. Basically she was born. It kind of blew my mind. I went back to work, but like over I don't even know the next couple years. I think I was like, I don't want to be away if I'm not doing something I really like, if I can manage it. And something about how I've lived with my parents dying isn't working. And I think setting a like model for her and being kind of the best version of myself, I knew I needed like a, a significant change, but I was like, I thought about starting my own business. I mean, I had so many different ideas, you know, I'm so working and, and then I end up writing something just like on medium about the first year of parenthood parentless. And it was just, I don't know. It just kind of like, it just, I was just, I was just like, Oh, this, I just felt right. This is it. This is it. Like, and it's been like a, that was a while ago. And, you know, a lot of this has like been off and on and probably hasn't gotten as steady until like the past two or three years. But yeah, I, I just, it just felt right. Like I, I thought I would be really nervous about sharing a lot of my personal experiences, but it was more like, oh, I got something on paper and then I like set it free. I didn't feel like, I totally um, get it. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, there it goes. There it uh, goes. Out into yes. the world. And I, but I'm sure you also had people respond and say, thank you for writing that. That made sense to me. And now I make a little more sense to myself, which is what good writing. I mean, I certainly have had that experience with your writing. Like, oh yeah, that's it. Exactly. And I think, you know, it's Cecil Day Lewis quote. That's like, you know, we read to feel understood mm. and the amount of grief writing that I throw across the room. Cause I'm like, this has nothing to do with me. I'm not, you know, but the ones that do, you know, I get to have a little cry in my shower in my private space about like, okay, I'm not as alone in the world. I think you're also talking about something. This has been a revelation. This, this came out of doing some of my own writing and actually reading between two kingdoms. Have you read that book? By no. I'm not going to say her name right, but Layla Salud. And she, she's, I think she's in, she has cancer again, but it's a really, really powerful book about a very young woman and a writer, someone who wrote for the New York Times, a gorgeous writer, getting cancer. And essentially what happens is she has cancer and is treated for cancer. I think it's for five years. And then she goes into remission and they're like, go live your life. But meanwhile, mm. when she got cancer, she had been living in Paris and had a, you know, a different boyfriend. And she was like, what life? What are you talking mm. about? I don't have a life. I live in a hospital. And I actually think as a, as a trauma therapist that for probably 20 years, I have been doing the disservice of listening 
to the regular adage that comes to us in our social work classes. Like when something dramatic happens, make no sudden movements. This is also, this is also a truism in a rooms and in addiction, which is like, listen, geography is not your issue. Don't go moving. Don't go getting divorced. Don't make big changes because you just need to titrate this and take it in slow bites. And I actually think that that is complete horseshit. I actually really deeply believe, I know this is true, that when you are handed an entire other continent, that's how energetic it is that you have to integrate into your new globe that is not quite spinning on an axis to say, well, it's not going to shift the other continents. It shouldn't touch the other continents. It shouldn't cause any waves to the other continents is fucking bonkers. And in fact, if somebody says, I think I want to quit my job for a little while, like obviously if it means you're not going to have health insurance, your babies can't yeah, eat, we need exactly. to be responsible. But most of my clients, irresponsibility was not on the table. That what they were saying was, I need to admit that the old thing doesn't exist anymore. And I need to invent something new whatever that is, I need something new over here. And maybe it'll steer me back towards the old paths, maybe, but also maybe not. Mm. And I don't think that happens to everybody. I think there are plenty of people who are like, nope, I'm on the old path. I'm in the old house. I'm on the old, with all the old things and it's fine. But I think there's just as many people who are like, none of that makes any sense. It may make some sense, but I'm going to have to do something completely different. And in Layla's book, she travels across the country. I know we're coming into close to the hour, but I really want to know about what is the writing that you're doing right now and how does it feed you and how does it, how do you find that it helps and supports other people? I wanted to add one more thing to what you're saying and then I'll answer that. But you made me think about, I feel like that was wild for me. You know, Cheryl's trade, I, I love, love, love. But I think there's like this idea of like, you know, just like, even like she writes about promiscuity or like hiking the Pacific Coast Trail and kind of being like, this post-grief life, like, isn't like a clear path, you know? And just like we were saying, and I think like getting more examples of that is really nice. And I think for me, I had felt really like, silenced I think everybody felt like a lot of people just wanted me to be happy and move on and all this stuff which is great and like writing was like a great way I think when I, some of the grief stuff I've written about has been like a chance to kind of push against that idea of like this expiration date or yeah. just like add to the voices saying there is no normal right. and it seems like there has been more of that generally recently. but I'm just for your writing because it's so gorgeous and comprehensive and sort of goes across other topics. What is your, what is that doing for you? Are you getting up every day and doing morning pages? Are you waiting and, you know, somebody is calling you and saying, Hey, we need your voice on this. Do you wait to, to, you know, be moved by it? How, how do you, how do you come into it? I'm just like always doing different pieces, I think. So I'm almost always pitching and the articles are usually things that I've journaled on, you know, and either I'm like, oh, can I report on this or should I make it a personal essay? I just had an essay published about like how hard it is to find friendships as a new mom. And then I'd moved and then the grief component, because like nobody really wants to talk about that. 
but that's like what I want to talk about. Yeah. Um, so it's always these pieces. And then I'm kind of working on some side projects. Like I really want to do like a children's book on grief and, you know, all these other ideas. I just, the whole thing, I feel like the writing, I just, I don't think about it or I don't dread it. I just feel like in it. And I love talking to other people and hearing their stuff and living in their stories. And I feel like my law job was confusing because I, I always got good reviews. I didn't get negative feedback, but I, I wasn't there, you know, I was good at like doing what needed to be done, but I wasn't actually like in it. And now I get to be like in it all the time. I'm interested. And I, yeah, it's just, it's just like evolving in like a, a nice way, I guess. It's not more, but <laughs> you know. Well I, well, I mean, it also does sound still like a hustle, like law, you know, you you're describing having, having added a whole new career that also has, I know, you know, the pitching and the learning yes. to be a journalist and writing as a journalist and keeping up your relationships and being relevant and not writing something that somebody else wrote. Amazing. This is, this is, yeah. So generous with your time. Thank yeah. you so much. We'll be in touch. Thank you. Yeah. I'm excited to, to do something again soon. Me too. Can we All right. Take okay. care. Thank you. Bye. Bye.